Lord God, early in the morning when the world was young, you made life in all its beauty. You gave birth to all that we know. Hallowed be your name. Early in the morning, when the world least expected it, a newborn child crying in a manger announced that you had come among us, that you were one of us. Hallowed be your name. Early in the morning, surrounded by respectable liars, religious leaders, anxious statesmen, and silent friends, you accepted the penalty for doing good, for being God. You shouldered and suffered the cross. Hallowed be your name. Early in the morning, a voice in guarded graveyard and footsteps in the dew proved that you had risen, that you had come back to those and for those who had forgotten, denied, and executed you. Hallowed be your name. And this morning, in the company of your church on earth and in heaven, we celebrate your creation, your life, your death and resurrection, your interest in us, and your redemption of all creation. Hallowed be your name. Good morning, my name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here at Anthem, and welcome, He is Risen. Amen. It is, uh, it's Easter morning, a special occasion. You can tell it's a special occasion because I'm wearing a suit, right? Uh, so it's only for marrying and burying and resurrections. Um, and so uh, welcome, uh, Easter morning. Uh, I just want to say first, if you're a guest this morning, uh, it's an honor that you've chosen to join us this morning. So hopefully you feel welcome. We don't want anything from you. We just want something for you. Uh, we want you uh, to know the good news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this morning, as we look at the resurrection, uh, the resurrection is what all of human history hinges on. Think about it, death and life hang in the balance. If Jesus was not actually risen from the grave, then this whole idea of everlasting life, this whole idea of uh, finding resurrection from the grave, life apart from sin and death, is completely just a nice idea. It's a sentiment. But if Jesus did rise from the grave, if he did walk out of that tomb on the third day, day, then that means that we as well can walk in that full resurrected life. Now, Luke's gospel, which will be in, will be in Luke 24, is interesting because I, th I think it's, it, it tries to challenge the assumption that we really understand the significance of the resurrection. Because when we think about it, I know that, you know, if we're Westerners, <laughs> uh, we've, we know how the story ends. I don't want to ruin the end of this story, but Jesus is resurrected, right? And, and so what happens is we know this story, so we know this idea of resurrection. We know about Easter and all these things, so we go, okay, resurrection, this is nice, um, but do we really experience the significance of it? And Luke, in his gospel account, actually is at pains to kind of capture that reality. See, what we're going to see is that Luke's gospel account is very unique in the way it captures the resurrection. The things that it chooses to highlight are very unique. And so what you'll see is uh, it's almost like Jesus is going to be hard to find. It's almost like, where is Jesus? Like, it's, it's like he's not at the tomb, and then he's like not recognized when, they're, when he's talking to people. And then all of a sudden, when they do recognize Jesus, all of a sudden, he vanishes. <laughs> and so it's almost like a where's Waldo or something, uh, resurrection account. And, so, and then also when he does, uh, and throughout it, the disciples are doubting. They're not really sure. what They don't recognize him. Something's going on. And what happens is we're going to follow along a 24-hour period. 
starts at dawn, actually before the sun would have, have risen, they would have been heading to the tomb. And then we get in the afternoon this, this walk and in, in t- discussion with Jesus on this road to this village called Emmaus. And then by the evening then, they finally arrive at this place, and that's where Jesus, they finally recognize him and see him. Now, what's Luke doing? What's, what Luke is doing is he's capturing a reality that is very, actually, it's timeless, which is the slow awareness, the, uh, growing in the awareness and our eyes slowly opening to the reality and the significance of what the resurrection really means. See, the disciples like us thought they understood the resurrection. After all, Jesus had predicted it again and again. Luke's gospel is actually structured around Jesus predicting his death and resurrection three days later. But it seemed like even though the disciples wanted to take hold of that reality, they couldn't quite take hold of it. In fact, actually, it seems like often when we talk about the resurrection, we go, well, either you're resurrected and you're alive or you're dead, right? But I think Luke's gospel captures a reality that is very much a reality that we find, which is kind of a third, aspect, a third reality, you could say, that we often don't think of, which is that we can actually neither be dead, at least not yet, but also not fully alive in the sense that the resurrection means for us. But in fact, we're in the middle, kind of in the state of what we call undead. Now, when I say undead, I know some of you immediately start picturing zombies in your mind, right? And that's what I want to talk about is zombies. And some of you are going, wow, I did not have zombies on my Easter bingo card, right? Did not expect to be looking at that this morning. Uh, But one of the things, zombies are a fascination in our culture. The undead, right? The zombie genre is actually one of the highest grossing subgenres in the, uh, in the entertainment industry. The Walking Dead, which if you don't know what that is, it's a show about zombies. Like, I go to church. I don't watch shows about zombies. Uh, but it's one of the most watched shows of all time. Uh, when we were living in, uh, my wife and I were living in Louisville, Kentucky, when we were younger. And in uh, Louisville, has, uh, we didn't know about this, but they actually every year have a, a zombie parade. Okay? So it's like this day of the undead, and every, like thousands of people literally dress up like zombies, and they parade through the streets, acting like, ah, right, walking around, and they go all throughout the city. Well, I did not know about this noble tradition in Louisville, and no one had warned me about it. And so I'm working, and at the time I worked in Starbucks, and I'm at the bar, and I'm making drinks, and you can imagine my surprise when a car quickly pulls up in front of the, uh, right out in front of the window that I can see, and it's filled with zombies. And so there's a zombie driving it, a zombie in the passenger seat, and then zombies at the pickup truck, three of them in the back, and they just slowly like slither out of the back, like full in character, right? And so they slide out and they're like, oh, and they're like walking towards the door. Now, I don't believe in zombies, okay? However, <laughs> however, when presented with evidence to the contrary, I begin to think perhaps zombies are maybe a thing. Perhaps this is happening now. And so I'm looking at it and I'm just like making drinks, like thinking, one, am I the only one seeing this, right? I'm kind of looking around. Everyone's just going about their business. And there is, what's going on? Well, as I'm sitting, I'm watching this, and I'm trying to, you know, calculate what's happening in this moment. And then as they come through the door, then all of a sudden, I'm, I'm looking around. I'm like, this could get very interesting. And so <laughs> I'm looking around the, the lobby. And they come lumbering in. And again, they're kind of in their full, full acting it out, because apparently everyone knows about this. But apparently everyone does not know about the parade, like me. And so all of a sudden, you can imagine, they come lumbering in, 
and a young mother and her child, probably about four years old, the little girl come out of the bathroom. And they come around the corner, and there are zombies there in the lobby, and the mother just lets out this blood-curdling scream, and the little girl starts crying, and everyone in the restaurant's freaking out about it, and Starbucks is freaking out about it. And then you know what doesn't calm down a young child that's crying when um, they see zombies? are the zombies trying to comfort the child. And so then the zombies begin making, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And I was like, this child's going to be in therapy for the rest of their life. Uh, so, but then what happens is one of, I realized that one of the, the gals who uh, was playing up the zombie thing, uh, she was a regular. And, and so she came up to the, the counter and she began to order. And of course, she was kind of acting out like I'm still a zombie. And you're like, oh, I'll take a long time, right? And uh, I thought, eat your brains. <laughs> and, and so she's ordering. But I really, even though she's playing it up, something hit me in that moment. That I realized, even though she's kind of acting like she's a zombie, acting like she's undead, I realized because this woman would every day on her way to work and every day on her way back, there was almost this, there was this moment where I realized there's not such a difference between her acting like a zombie and how she normally is when she comes in and orders. <laughs> and so there's kind of this usual, like, kind of coming in, like, latte, right? Like, at the end of the day, like, just kind of going through life, and it would just be every day kind of this reality, like, I'm not really alive, but I'm also not dead. I'm just kind of getting through life, and I'm just kind of trying to find whatever's in front of me to just consume it to whatever promises a little taste, a little moment, a little spark. And I realized perhaps the reason why we're so fascinated with zombies, we're so fascinated with the idea of the undead, is because it actually captures our reality as modern people. That often we go through our lives, not, not, not dead, at least not yet, but also not fully alive. And we just kind of go through life in this instinctive, like just with these desires and these, these hungers that we have, just going through life, just kind of, ah, if anything could please give me life. In other words, like the disciples, we're in a place where we find, like, I want to know the resurrection. I want to know life. No one wants to be dead, but Luke's going to take us on a journey to ask ourselves, are we settling for being undead? Because Jesus didn't come for us just to be undead. He came for us to be fully alive in him. And so what we're going to look at first is searching for life among the dead. Then second, we're going to look at living as the undead. And then third, the secret to finding life, to taking hold of that life that we can have in Jesus Christ. Let's pray, and we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you. Lord, that this morning you have not just called us, given us a holiday that gives us a little reprieve from living as the undead. That, Lord, you have not just given us a, a, some historical evidence of some kind of an event that's meant to fascinate us, But Lord, you have given us an event, a moment in history, when all the world thought that you had been defeated, when all the world thought, when Satan cried out and gloated over your son, claiming that he was his captive, claiming that he had won, claiming that death would reign. That in that moment, your son rolled back the stone and light shot forth from that tomb 
and he stepped out of that grave. And Lord, because of that event, because of that truth, because of that moment, because of that reality, because of your power, because of what you've done, Lord, we come here this morning not just wanting a little pick-me-up to make life as the undead a little bit more bearable, but Lord, you have brought us here today to hear the proclamation from that tomb, the lion's roar, that it is finished. And you have given us everlasting life in your presence. Lord, help us to walk away from here, taking hold of that life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what's striking about the women when they arrive at the tomb, again, we're in Luke 24, is that they expected to find a decomposing body. They expected to find a rotting corpse. Verse 1, but on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. So they brought spices to the tomb, not because, you know, you just bring spices to be like, hey, Jesus, you're here, here's some spices. You bring spices because the body at this point is beginning to rot. And, and so throughout history, this is what human, before embalming, the only way that you could dignify a body while it was rotting and memorialize it was to pack spices around it. This is why actually still to this day, we put flowers around a coffin. If you, if you didn't know, this started because back before embalming in the 20th century, when you would have a funeral so that the entire church or the home would not smell of a rotting corpse, uh, what you would do is you would pack flowers around the coffin. It was actually to cover up the stench of the decomposing body. So we still do it to our, this day, and even with embalming, though we don't need it, uh, we do that, and that's where that tradition comes from. And, uh, and here's the thing. You would not bring flowers to a funeral expecting to hand them to your dearly departed. Now, would you? And in the same way, these women were not going to the tomb expecting like, to bring flowers or spices or anything to hand them to a resurrected Lord. They were expecting to find a body, a dead body. Now, I should say this. One of the things about usually with Luke's gospel uh, a, a big focus on it will be on kind of like an apologetic argument for how do we know the historical evidences of Jesus' resurrection, which is incredibly important and very helpful. Uh, but I think one of the main ones here is just the fact that these women did not expect to find him alive. See, oftentimes we say, well, they, you know, we modern folks, if we went and we heard that someone had died, we would go after three days, and you know what we'd expect? We'd expect a body and someone to be dead. But these, you know, ancient people, when they would go, they believed in all these myths and these fables, and so when they went, they expected a resurrected Lord, and they got kind of carried away about it. No, that's just chronological snobbery. We actually are the same as them. They went there as well, expecting a dead body. Everyone in the gospel accounts expects a dead body. They had no reason to make it up. In fact, actually, Mary, in John's gospel, when she, uh, she cried out, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. They expect to find a leader, a teacher, a friend who is dead. And this is where the text gets interesting. Verse 4 and 5, while they were still perplexed about this, behold, now they, they went in, there was no body there. So they were perplexed about this. Behold, the two men stood by them in dazzling. Dazzling is like lightning, like um, angelic um, apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? Why do you seek the living among the dead? Now, why did they ask that question? 
See, they go on and they say, isn't this exactly how Jesus told you it would happen? Verse 6 and 7, he is not here but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. See, what they're saying is, if you catch that, they're saying, don't you understand? This is what Jesus has said the whole time. He said not only, not only did he say this would happen, he said this must happen. And why did he say that this must happen? Because here's the thing, these women are going and everyone thinks that Jesus has lost. Like the great leader, he finally lost his cause. The great teacher, it finally kind of, his voice ran out and now we just are left with his wisdom. Like the great, the great guru that we, had told us we would, he would give us this great lifestyle, whatever, however you want to put it, modern terms, whatever they thought about Jesus, they, they thought though that he had been defeated and they could not see that what Jesus was saying was your problem is not just with your lifestyle. Your problem is not just with having like kind of some nice days and some nice moral teachings and whatnot. The problem is your sin. And because of your sin, you cannot escape death. And so the only way I can defeat that final enemy is to die. See, while they think he's defeated, what they don't see is that he has actually defeated death through his death. He has put an end to it. He has put it in the grave. It's the only way to save humanity from its sins. Now, why, why is that significant? Even that phrase, why do you seek the living among the dead? I mean, obviously beyond the fact that Jesus did conquer the grave. But here's the thing. We can easily miss the significance of the resurrection by looking for significance the significance of Jesus and his resurrection among the dead. You go, what, what do you mean? We, even though we know how the story ends, we know he's resurrected, we have that idea in our head, there's a strong tendency to do what the women do. In our lives, when we approach Jesus, when we, we have this idea of God, and, and we, okay, Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, he's entered the world, and how do I relate to him? And what we often do is, like the women, is the default is to not really believe that he's actually, there's a moment in time, a historical day, a historical event, where the Son of God stepped out of the tomb, conquering the grave, and he was resurrected. And we tend to be like the women and begin to think about him as someone to be memorialized someone to be respected, someone to be listened to his teachings, listened to his wisdom. But in fact, is he really living? Does he really have anything for today? Is he truly alive? So what we can often do is we can look for Jesus by just making, let's say, a moral system from his teaching. Or just it being kind of like some little tidbits for how to live our best life. In other words, we can look for Jesus among the dead when we make Jesus nothing more than just a moral or social system for this life among the undead. Ah, Jesus. Yes, better marriages. Kinder etiquette. Gives me a good work ethic. He spices up my life a little bit. So I'll, every now and then I'll go and I'll pinch off a little spice incense to remember him. See, what Luke is saying here is that, and what the angels are saying, is if you look for him among the dead, 
If you look for him merely among this world and this life, and that's all Jesus is for you, then you never will encounter his life. You never will encounter him. If you look for him in the wrong place among the dead, you'll miss the life that he offers. In fact, when we look for Jesus among the dead, we end up living as the undead. So living as the undead. Later that day, most likely into the afternoon, uh, two disciples are walking to a village called Emmaus. In verse 14, pick it up there. And they were talking with each other. And by the way, this was probably a husband and wife combo. You normally think of this as two men, most likely a husband and wife. They're talking to each other about these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. They go, how in the world, if they knew Jesus, could they not recognize him? Like, you know, sometimes it's like, was Jesus like disguised? Right, like Jesus walked up. I remember once, like my friend came to, we were at Halloween, and my friend is like 6'4", and all of a sudden down the road, he was like wearing this gorilla costume, right? And he was coming at us, and we're all like, what the? And then he was like going up to the kids, and they're all scared, and I almost punched the guy. Like I almost was like, who is this? Bam! And then my friend like revealed himself, and I was like, oh, like did Jesus like come up like just disguised in some way? Like a mustache with like the glasses, right? He came up, and he was like, oh, hello. We're like, oh, who are you? What's your name? He's like, oh, I'm J.G. John Christ, Christensen, John Christensen, right? And you're like, oh, he's a nice guy, right? Was he just disguising himself? I don't think so. The reason why they can't see Jesus is because they have expectations of who the resurrected Christ, what he would be like. Something was causing them not to recognize him. Something was in the way. Luke doesn't tell us exactly what but that physically, but he gives us a clue into their hearts, starting in verse 17. And he said to them, this is Jesus, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. They're depressed. They're in the same place as the women. They're defeated. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who has not known the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, this is Jesus. What things? <laughs> Do tell. And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty indeed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to, die, to death and crucify him. But, but, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. So they say, yes, he was, a, he was a great leader. He did great things. He did miraculous things. He healed people. He, did all, he was a, this amazing man, this amazing leader. But, or somebody said something to me once when I was younger, because I would always like, da, 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 but, but, la, 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 la. And they're like, you do realize that what you really think is true comes after the but. And see, for these men, what they really think is true comes after the but. They say, he was a great leader, he was all these things, but where all of our hope was found was we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. See, they had a certain expectation of what that redemption would look like. They had a certain expectation of the kind of savior he was. 
the kind of leader he was, the kind of man he was. See, they had an idea, probably most likely because of what's described here. They're looking at it, Jesus being this great political leader, movement leader, revolutionary, you could say. That Jesus would be the one who would free them from captivity to Rome, from their overlords. And this idea that if Jesus could just give us that, the whole time when Jesus is talking to them, and he's saying, listen, I'm going to have to, I'm leading you, and I'm, I'm going to heal you, and I'm going to do these things. In Luke's gospel, he's been saying this again and again and again. He's been talking about a kingdom that he's going to bring. And the whole time what they're hearing is Jesus is going to give us a little bit better of a life here. Jesus even began his entire public ministry reading, taking the words of Isaiah 61 and applying them to himself. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's Savior. He's saying, I'm going to bring a kingdom and it's going to heal you and it's going to free you. The lame are going to walk. Injustice is going to be done away with. And the whole time, what they're seeing is not, they're not mistaken that Jesus is a great liberator, that he's a great revolutionary, that he's a great teacher, that he's any of those things. What they're wrong about is what Jesus would liberate them from. Because they think all they need to be liberated from are their overlords in this world. And what Jesus is saying is if I merely free you from them, if I merely just unshackle you from them, remove those pressures from your life, free you from them so that you no longer have them over you, then the problem is I can remove every evil despot in this world, which I can with the snap of my fingers. But the problem is then you will just be left to the most evil, despot, and ruler imaginable, which is yourself. And sin and death residing in your soul. And Jesus says, I'm not just coming to take away the things on the surface. I'm coming to take away the root core issue to free you. Jesus says, don't you see how your hearts are enslaved to things that fail you? They cripple your heart, blind your soul, reduce you to instinct, just hungering, going through life, just hungering, trying to find that thing that will finally solve it. Saint uh, Augustine said, and so our, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. We just go through lumbering through life, just undead, with that restlessness looking for that peace that will finally do it, thinking the next thing and consuming the next thing and consuming the next thing, whether it's relationships or it's things or products or whatever it could be. The next rung. Jesus says, I didn't come just so you can continue to just, oh, undead. Going through life with just this gaping chasm. But that you be alive, satisfied. You're breathing, but you aren't truly alive. See, what they thought they were seeking was life and freedom, but they were settling for living undead. Because if your soul isn't alive, 
If that sense of restlessness isn't really satisfied, then what will happen is you will grab onto anything you can in this world to try to find that life. Tap your life into these things. Maybe this other relationship, maybe this other fling, maybe this other career path, maybe this other, and just constantly, like our lives are just constantly trying to plug into these different outlets going, will something finally work? And then at times, even something seems for a while it will, and then it fails us. No one, I feel, captures that dynamic like David Foster Wallace. He wrote Infinite Jest, one of the uh, most brilliant postmodern writings of all time. I'm not a believer himself, but he captured this, was wrestling with this as a human. What does it mean to find that life that I just feel like is, I have to find it, I have this hunger? He says, there is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning into life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly and when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. What Foster Wallace is saying is we already know exactly what's being described here. That so often we're living as the undead. Even the best things of life, when we try to tap our meaning into them, end up becoming most ruinous thing for our souls. And see, what's interesting is that Jesus is going to say with these men, because even these men are, they were followers of his. They would have confessed Jesus. They would have said, we know about the Old Testament and all these things, and Jesus is the one that is supposed to be the Savior. And, but here's the thing, they were still tapping their life, even as religious people. So hear this, church people. Jesus is saying, even as church people, you can still tap your life into the wrong things, whether it's just finding it in morality, just finding it, in, and what you're going to see here is finding it in just whatever system, religious systems or lifestyles, expressions. And we can make the whole thing just about trying to find life here in the land of the dead, living as the undead. And Jesus says, no, the whole thing has been about me. All of Christianity, all of the word of God, all of history, all of it is meant to be pointing to me, the whole thing, that hunger and that yearning that you have. I am the missing piece. And so he takes them through all of Scripture. And it says he went through, back through, starting with Moses. He said, you see that all of this has been pointing to me the entire time, not to the things of this world. This is, I'm going to read through just to bring this home. I think it's J.D. Greer, pastor I'm going to listen to just how all throughout the Old Testament, this is probably how Jesus would have spoken to them. He says, let me tell you this story, the real story of the world and how it all points to me. In Genesis, I was the word of God creating the heavens and the earth. In Exodus, I was the Passover lamb whose blood was sprinkled on the doorposts of your heart so that you could escape the bonds of slavery. In Leviticus, I was the temple, the holy place where you met with God. In Numbers, I was your ever-present guide, your pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night. In Deuteronomy, I was the prophet coming who is greater than Moses. 
In Joshua, I was the conquering warrior leading you into the promised land. In Judges, I was the broken savior rising up to rescue you. In Ruth, I was your kinsman redeemer. In First and Second Samuel, I was the pure-hearted shepherd king who rushed out to face your giants all alone. First and Second Kings, I was the righteous ruler. First and Second Chronicles, I was the restorer of the kingdom. In Ezra, the faithful scribe. In Nehemiah, the rebuilder of the walls. In Esther, I was your advocate, risking my life to restore you to royalty. In Job, I was your living redeemer. In Psalms, I was the one who hears your cries. In Proverbs, I am wisdom personified. In Ecclesiastes, I am the meaning that lets you escape the madness. In the Song of Solomon, I am your lover and your bridegroom. In Isaiah, I was the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, wounded for your transgressions and bruised for your iniquities. In Jeremiah, I am the spirit that writes God's laws on your hearts. In Lamentations, I was the weeping prophet. In Ezekiel, I was the river of life, bringing healing to the nations. In Daniel, the fourth man in the fire. In Hosea, I was the ever faithful husband pursuing my unfaithful bride. In Joel, I was the restorer of all that the locusts have eaten. In Amos, I was your burden bearer. In Obadiah, the judge of the earth. In Jonah, the prophet cast out into the storm so that you could be brought in. In Micah, the everlasting ruler born to us in Bethlehem. In Nahum, the avenger of God's elect. In Habakkuk, your reason to rejoice even when your fields are empty. In Zephaniah, I am the great reformer. In Haggai, the cleansing fountain. In Zechariah, the pierced son whom every eye on earth will one day behold. And to and in Malachi, I am the son of righteousness rising with healing in my wings. Jesus is saying, I am the Alpha before even the beginning. I am the Omega. I am the end. As Paul says, all of the promises of God find their yes and their amen in me. It's all meant to point to him. It's not just some game. It's not just some anthology of just religious fables or moral fables or myths and fairy tales. It's more than that. Yes, is it history? Yes, but into that history, it is pointing in the tragedy of human history as if it was just season after season after season of the walking dead. And Jesus is coming in. He's saying, I'm not just giving you one more season. We're not just playing it back again. But I have come to end this death once and for all so that you don't have to live like a zombie but you can find newness of life in me. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And listen, when they read that, when they heard that, it says in verse 32 that their hearts burned within them. And I wonder this morning if, I know it's Easter, and so I know for some of you, you're like, hey, you haven't been in church for a while, maybe something happened. Maybe you're just like, I've never checked out this Christianity thing. And here's what I just want to be clear. It is not about, this whole thing is not about how like cool and hip of a, of a group we are. We're not that cool. We don't talk about zombies every week, okay? I don't wear a suit every week. Like that actually wasn't the cool part, right? Uh, it's not about just like, we're not Jesus' PR people. This isn't about just putting yourselves together and just trying to pick yourself up and just get a little bit of spice for your life, just to fix yourself up, clean up yourself up. The whole thing, all of this, it's all about Jesus. And if you have been sold the bill of goods, the lie that it's about anything else, and you just found yourself living like a zombie again, then what Jesus is saying this morning is find life in me. 
And so if you've been given that lie over years or you've been in this room and you're saying, this just never hit me, and right now your heart is burning within you, then know that your heart is burning because your heart is meant for that life in him. He is the one. And so what Jesus does next, what Luke captures is even in the midst of this moment, when actually the disciples still don't fully recognize him. And even for us, we're going, I, I see it, and my heart burns for that, and I, this idea of life and one who gives me life, but how do I take hold of him? How do I find that life? Lastly, the secret to finding life. The day is almost complete, and they come to a village. After they've been traveling the seven miles to Emmaus. And it's funny, Jesus acts like he's just going further. Like, <laughs> Oh, oh, you guys want me to stay? Okay, cool. Right? Verse 29. But they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. They urged him strongly, because you can imagine their hearts are burning, and they're going, wait, 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 we, we haven't fully found out. We want whatever, whatever it is that you're talking about. We want this. Stay with us, please. Don't leave until we have it. But how do we get it? Verses 30 and 31, fascinating verses. When he was at a table, at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And get this, and their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And then he vanished from their sight. <laughs> Don't know where to laugh or cry, right, when you read that. The whole day they've been looking for him. Jesus, is he dead? Is he just in the stories? Is he just kind of this religious system? Who, who is this Jesus? And then finally, Jesus comes and he takes his bread and he breaks the bread. And when he breaks the bread, they recognize him and then he vanishes. What's going on there? What is Luke saying? What Luke is saying is the reason why Jesus vanishes is because something in what Jesus does there is where he tells them the life you've been looking for, the life you can't find, the life that is escaping you again and again and again, it's found here. see it. Here's what I imagine the disciples when they see him and they see him take the bread and they, Jesus, Jesus, you're the one, it's you. And they run across the room and as they get ready to just embrace him, all of a sudden he vanishes. And then you can imagine that moment going, why? Why would you just, why would you vanish? And then as they back up and they look at that table and they see the broken bread. And they remember the blessing that Jesus had said, and it cues them, causing them to remember something that Jesus said the night before he headed to the cross. It's in Luke 22. And when the hour came, he reclined at table, just like here in Luke 24. And the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. 
do this in remembrance of me. The blessing Jesus would have spoken was that. This is my body, broken for you. Now, what's the real significance behind that? In the, we miss the historical context. We think that the Lord's Supper is like a new meal. Like all of a sudden, Jesus is like, I have an idea, guys. I'm going to make this meal up, and you're going to do this meal now in perpetuity to remember me. But that's not true at all. The Last Supper is actually taking, building on something that existed before that ever since the time of the Exodus called a Seder. It's a Passover meal. On the night of the Passover meal, which at this Seder, what would happen is at some point, a child would be asked to recount and read through this whole kind of a bunch of scripture and whatnot that would recount the history of Israel. And usually as some would stand up and as the host of the Last Supper, Jesus would have retold the story. So this whole night in Luke, Jesus is going back through the history of Israel and how God had freed his people when they were in bondage and they were just living as slaves, just completely undead, going through life, not having any control over themselves or any freedom. Probably, if anything, wishing it'd be better to be dead because we can't be fully alive. And what Jesus does at that meal is there would be four cups of wine And what would happen is they would read from Scripture and they would say these words. They would hold up the cup and they would say the cup of sanctification. And then I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will free you from death. Then they would take another cup and they would say this is the cup of judgment. I will rid you of their bondage and get you. Remember, Jesus is taking each of these cups and doing it with the disciples while doing the Passover meal. And then the third cup of redemption, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. And most scholars believe that at that moment is when Jesus took the cup and he took the bread that they've been using and he said, this all points to me. The whole time this has been pointing to me. And this whole time, while you thought that everything was just about following some religious system, it was just about kind of going about life as it normally was, just getting a little, getting ourselves together a little bit more, what Jesus is saying is, no, 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 no. What's happening now is that my body is the once for all broken sacrifice for you. And here's the thing. If you are covered by the blood of the lamb in the Exodus, then you will make it through to the other side, to the promised land. What Jesus is saying here when he vanishes, when he takes the bread, is he says, listen, look here. You cannot find life. You can't do it. If you try to find life and you try to find the resurrection, you cannot do it. But listen what I have done. Remember what I said I would do. The one thing that you can do is you can choose to come to me. And if you look to me by faith, not only is my body broken for you, but when they see that, they remember what it said in that last Seder when he said, but if you are, my blood covers you and my, my body is broken for you and that sacrifice covers your sin, then just as the blood of the lamb covered the people of Israel, you will pass through to the promised land. In other words, Jesus is saying the invitation to freedom, the invitation to life is coming through me and my sacrifice. And what Jesus is inviting us to today and what he's inviting the disciples to then is to come to him by faith. And he says, if you will come to me, 
then I will lead you to the land of the living, to the promised land, to life with me. See what's ironic here? Is that while they looked for him in the grave and they looked for him in the tomb, Jesus says, actually, you do have to come to me in my death. You have to give up living, trying to find life by being half alive, by being undead. You have to stop trying to play it that way and trying to put down your pretension and acting like you're this religious person who's finding life when you're just the whole time pretending. He says, you have to die to yourself and come to me. And he says, when you do, you will find life in me. If you come to me, he says, remember me. Remember how I gave you life. That through, or though my body was broken, death could not hold me. Neither will it hold you if you come to me. I have not come for you to be merely lumbering through existence as the undead, Jesus says. Listen, it's even interesting with this meal. When we live as the undead, you know the undead? Eat and drink in order to forget. But what Jesus says with this meal is if you're alive in me, you eat and drink to remember that you have life. Life is not found among the undead, but the one who is living. And Jesus is saying, by breaking the bread, he says, come to me. Come to me by faith in my finished work on your behalf. And if you come to me, then I am the one. If you're one with me in my death, you will rise with me to newness of life. So come to me. The tomb is empty. He is risen. The only question that remains, are you? And reflecting on this, this week what we're going to do is do communion actually together. Um, you have a cup on your, your seat. And in communion, Jesus would have taken bread because Luke's gospel drops us off at communion. So what a better way to reflect on the resurrection life that Christ has given us than by taking communion together as one body. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And he said, this is how you are saved. That I will be broken for you. I will be torn for you. I will die for you. See, Jesus, in communion, Jesus is saying this looks back to that sacrifice that saved Israel. It's the same new and better sacrifice now in me that it points backward to the reality that Jesus, because of his broken body and shed blood, his sacrifice is enough to forgive, forgive us of our sins. That we can come to him and we can, by faith, accept that judgment and die to this life in him. But not only that, but then Jesus says, listen, you also eat this meal. Because not only are you united with me, is there union, but also there's communion. That now you eat this meal just as we sit around a dinner table because you are one with me. That now you also, in my resurrection, you have life with me. And so we eat this meal that is very sweet, because in the brokenness and the bitterness of our sin, we see how truly sweet our Christ is. But also that meal points forward to a future reality as Jesus says that one day I will not drink again until you're with me in my kingdom. In other words, until the fullness of this kingdom comes, it's a foretaste of a full meal that is yet to come. We'll be fully alive in his presence. 
And so in a moment, we'll take this together. And you may be asking, saying, hey, I'm not really a Christian. Should I jump into this? And here's what I would say. I would, if you're not a believer, a follower of Christ, I'd say, do not take this meal. You would not want to take a meal that remembers something that's not true for you. Instead of remembering, you would want to receive that reality for the first time. And so if that sense of your heart burning within you and saying, no, there's no way that I can save myself. There, I've tried it again and again. I either can't clean myself up, I can't succeed enough, whatever it is. I can't numb it enough. I would ask you during this time, as we're going through this, that you would go before God and you would cry out to him and say, if Jesus is real, then save me. His cross is enough for the greatest evil in the world. There is nothing you've done that puts you outside of his love and his grace. If you will come to him. And so during this time, instead of remembering, receive him and look to that sacrifice for the forgiveness of your sins. And so let's take this meal together. On the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. And likewise, the cup. After they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Let's drink the cup together. For as long as you eat and drink this meal, Paul says, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Lord, we Lord, we long to experience the resurrection. Lord, to know life in you, to walk in that reality. Lord, I ask where we came in here this morning, just by default, going through Easter and another holiday, just as a, a reprieve again from living as the undead. Lord, I pray that this morning as we come face to face with Christ in this meal, in Scripture, Lord, I pray that your Spirit would point us to the life that we can have in Him. Lord, I pray for any of us this morning that believe we're beyond Christ's grace, Lord, that by your spirit, you would call our hearts. Just as Jesus called Lazarus out of the tomb, Lord, would you call by name right now? Lord, for any of us who, who think that we're beyond grace, that whatever we've done keeps us in the tomb and we believe that we just deserve to just, we should just stay in that tomb forever and ever and ever and there's no kind of grace that could ever be given us so that we could walk out of it. Lord, I pray that this morning you would help them to see that your grace is enough. That yes, while we may deserve to stay in the tomb because of our sin, you set your affection upon us and entered this world. Entered among the dead, but didn't live as the undead. He died our death and rose again so we might, not, we might walk in newness of life. And so, Lord, this morning, would you help us to think big things of the resurrection? Help us to walk in newness of life. Help us to come to Christ and find freedom. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.